It's good to see everybody. Are we ready for Christmas? I really like this uh, idea, which wasn't my idea, um, but the 1030 Christmas Eve uh, welcoming in Christmas, because we'll be there at 1201, most likely. So grateful to the Englishes, too, for their dreaming up uh, this night. And uh, anyway, numbers <laughs> is the book we're in. You think we're getting out of it today? We have an incredible Christmas text in Numbers chapter 21. So turn in your Bibles there. We'll get right into the reading of the text. We're going to start reading at verse 4. Very interesting story that some of us might know. To understand Christmas, it's definitely a text that we should know. All right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Numbers 21, beginning at verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. Interesting. There is no bread. There is no water. Yet we detest this miserable food, the manna. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses interceded on behalf of the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake, and they were healed. This is God's word. You can be seated. So again, surprise, surprise. Uh, we come to a text, and Israel's grumbling and complaining uh, not the first time that we have seen this song and dance. Now, when you read Numbers, it, it feels like Israel's complaining and grumbling every single day. But one of the things that we forget when we read the Bible is that so much of the Bible is like a highlight reel. And think about what a highlight reel is compared to the actual game. When you look closer at Israel's grumbling and complaining, you see this. You see that Israel complained when they first left Egypt and, and entered the desert. I mean, it was a shock to their system. So they complained. Then two years into desert life, they complain again. Now they're complaining again in our text today. But do you know how many years have passed between Numbers 11, where they're two years in and, and they complain, and our text today, Numbers 21? 36 years have passed. 
That's 36 years of no complaining, of mundane faithfulness, of Israel doing life with God and walking faithfully with him. Then when you also stop to think about the context of this text, in the previous chapter, God more or less says, all right, Israel, it's time. We're coming to the end of, 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 of this desert. It, it's time for you to enter the promised land. Um, the easiest way from the desert into the promised land is for them to pass through Edom. Edom are the descendants of Esau. These are their brothers. They share the same father and Isaac, the same grandpa and Abraham. But in Numbers 20, we read, they ask Edom, brother, can we pass through your land? We'll, we'll stay right on the road. We won't... Uh, eat from your fields, we won't drink from your wells, we'll just quietly pass through. And, and, and Edom says, you take one step on our country and there'll be war. So get in their shoes. They've waited all these years for promised land. They're finally about ready to enter it. They're moving towards the goal. And then all of a sudden, this huge detour, and they have to turn around and go in the opposite direction. This is why verse 5 of our text, they became impatient. Deep disappointment sweeps through the whole camp of Israel. As the proverb says, the hope deferred makes the heart sick. And now the complaints begin to flow. Why did you take us out of Egypt? Why did you take us to this desert where there is no food, there is no water, and we detest this miserable manna? And with their mouths, they not only curse Moses, but they curse God. So God sends snakes upon them, poisonous snakes. Many are bit. Some of them die. And I know this troubles some of us. Like, how can God do such a thing? Seems way over the top. In fact, sometimes I, I, I hear people say when reading a text like this, this isn't the God that I serve. Well, what God do you serve then? A God of your own making? Here's the deal. As, as Christians who believe that this was written by God to reveal all that God is. We don't get to proof text God. We, we don't get to cherry pick our favorite passages about God and then craft God into what we want God to be. Because when we do this, this is why at Crossroads, we like to just go through a book of the Bible and 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 sit under the whole thing and not go around the hard text. Because when you cherry pick, you're not worshiping a real God. You're really just worshiping yourself, a projection of what you want your God to be. And when we read the Bible, we just need to let God be God. We need to trust that his ways are higher than our ways, and we need to drink in every word that God says about himself. I mean, what Neil said two weeks ago is still messing with me. 
what he said about entitlement. Because it's entitlement that, that causes us to struggle with the fact that God can send snakes and have people die. Because we've been taught our whole life that we deserve a lot. We deserve a comfortable, pain-free, good life. And Neil and that gentlemanly British, just standing up here kind of way, just kind of took the knife and put it in my heart and started turning it by saying, every breath we take is a gift from God. Every day we get to live is a gift from God. Everything we have is a gift from God. That's the antidote to entitlement. And in Deuteronomy 8, God says, I led you, Israel, to this desert to discipline you as a father disciplines his son. Now, I'm old enough to look at and see, while I didn't have perfect parents, I had amazing parents. And the greatest gift that they gave me, the greatest form of love that they showed me was their discipline. I mean, we love to sing that song around here about God, you're a good, good father. I mean, I could almost sing that song about my father. He's a good, good father, as was my mother. And they were good not in spite of the fact that they disciplined me. They were, they were good because they disciplined me. And God, God, as a good father, he continues to discipline me. And, and some of you right now are in the desert, and really, you, we ought to rejoice when we're there because oftentimes it's just our loving father's discipline. In fact, the stakes are too high for God to not discipline. Because this isn't just about Israel. This isn't just about us. This isn't just what God wants Israel to be. This isn't just what God wants us to be. But this is for the nations. Forty years in the desert of God's discipline is God preparing them for promised land where they will be God's people in that special place in the middle of the world so that they can priest God into the nations. And last week with Moses, in, in, in making him, himself equal with God and, and sharing God's glory, God says, I loved how Dr. Stoll put this, I can't trust you, Moses. And now Israel, after 38 years of this desert boot camp, you can't blow it like this. You're my people to be a holy nation, a nation of priests. Not just for your sake, but for the sake of the world. That's why when you read the Bible, you will see that God's harshest discipline never falls on the, on the nations. His harshest discipline always falls on his people because the whole thing is not just about Israel. The whole thing is not just about the church. God's heart is for the nations, and he needs a people who can be holy as he is holy, 
so we can put God's glory on display for the world to see and know God. Now, why poisonous snakes? Well, what is Israel's sin? They sinned with their mouths. How did sin enter the world and, and, and poison it? Through a snake. But how did the snake's poison infect the world? It wasn't through the snake's bite. It was through the snake's mouth, his words. Words are potent. I mean, you stop and think about our wordy world, how much time we spend speaking words, reading words, hearing words, writing words. Words have enormous power. James picks up on this. James, James 3, James says, the tongue is a small part of the body but makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is just that, a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by humankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly venom. With the tongue we praise the Lord our Father, and with it we curse human beings. We've been made in God's likeness out of the same mouth. Come praise and cursing, brothers and sisters. How can this be? I mean, just think about some of the things that have been said about you. Things that you can't forget that are just kind of rattling around in your mind. It's almost like they have their own, their own little life. Things that have been said that have hurt you, betrayed you. And they're still hurting you. They're still wounding you. It's because words are potent. Words can wound. Words, words can kill. Words can destroy. That's what's going on in our text. God's people have become like poisonous snakes. In fact, some scholars that, that, that I looked at this week suggest that the snakes in our text are, are, are metaphorical. <laughs> and, and go with me. In other words, they're not real snakes, but... They're just a picture of the poison that, that James 3 is talking about, the poison of the tongue. And this is the poison, they say, that is bringing death to the camp. Now, I'm not saying that I hold to that. I actually do think that they were real snakes. But listen, just the thought of real snakes entering a camp, biting people, and killing people, I mean, that freaks me out. I remember years ago when we were in Palm Springs, and Libby and I were out on a hike, and all of a sudden this mouse went screaming across the tra trail, and I, I like jumped. <laughs> oh, and what was following, what, what was behind the mouse? Huge rattlesnake came slithering across the path. I'm totally freaked out. We're only halfway in, though. 
We have halfway to go. We keep hiking. Then I hear it, the rattler. And I'm looking, and I look down right at my feet, and there's a huge rattler coiled up. Sorry, Libby. I ran out of that thing as fast as I could. <clears throat> Not a good moment in my life. Why don't we look at our words like that? That our words can be just as dangerous as poisonous snakes. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5.21 more or less says, we commit murder with our mouths and our words. And it's not just that our words carry enormous power for, 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 for evil and destruction, but our, our words also carry enormous power for good. Listen to what Proverbs, uh, <laughs> I thought I got that one down, I didn't. Proverbs 12, verse 16, does anybody know it? So glad right now I'm looking right at the book of Proverbs and I'm not panicking right now. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Healing. Life. As a youth pastor, I mean, I, I worked with thousands of students. And I learned very quickly how badly they needed compliments, how... how how their hearts would just soak up verbal affirmation like sponges. And, and I, of course, I think about when I was young. I think about my parents. I think about my coaches, my teachers, uh, my friends, the people that God used in my life to shape me into anything that I am. It was, it was largely through the power of their words because words have enormous power. And a lot of these key people in my life believed in me when I didn't believe in me. And they saw things and said things about me that I didn't even think were, were possible. I remember Rabbi uh, Jason Sobel, the guy that preached here about a year ago. He also uh, did a Shabbat meal for, for, for some of us um, on, a, on a Friday night. And I remember at, at that Shabbat meal, one of the things that he said, uh, he said, he said the greatest memory he had of Shabbat, because he grew up in a Jewish home and, and every week was, was a strict Shabbat um, uh, observance. He said, I remember the point during every meal when my dad would stand up and he'd start with my mom and he'd go right around the table to all of us kids and he'd just bless us. He'd speak words of encouragement. He'd say specific things about, I see this in you, and I bless God that you're this. In a world where, where, where there's so much tearing down through words, no wonder so many Jewish kids have so much swagger and confidence. They've heard the blessing of the most important people in their lives just being spoken over them. Do we speak? What, kind, what kinds of words come out of our mouth? 
Do we recognize the enormous power of our words? But it's deeper than just words because Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the serpent infected the human race with a poison that went deeper than just our mouths. It's a venom that went deep into the human heart. And, and what is that venom? It's, it's the venom that in every heart says, I need more. That we're never happy with what we have. We're never content with, with, with what is. I mean, we've learned this about Israel. Israel has turned their desert into Eden where every day God is, is providing food. He's miraculously raining down manna from heaven. And this manna isn't just some nasty, uh, worthless bread that the Jews say it is. It's, it's the bread that the angels themselves eat. It's this incorruptible food of the immortals. They get to eat manna. But just like Adam and Eve in Eden, it's not good enough. If only we could eat from that tree. If only this. If only we could have that. Listen. Even in a world as good as Eden, the poison of our heart is still saying, this isn't good enough. I need more. Whether it's our job, whether it's our friends, our spouse, our family, our clothes, our, our possessions, the home that we live in, our, our place in life. Why is our hearts always just saying we need more? It's the poison. We're all snake bitten. And the grumbling and the complaining that we hear so often only reflects this deeper poison that's in the human heart. We stop and listen to how we talk. Listen to all the grumbling today, all the complaining, all the critiquing, all the negativity. We need to just stop and listen to ourselves. And it's not even just the stuff that comes out of our mouths, but it's, it's the things that we blog, it's the things that we post, it's the things that we text, the things that we write. And Jesus says, all of that, though, is just a reflection of, of really what's on the inside. And, and, and the poison that's deep inside the human heart is this insatiable appetite for more. This infinite discontentment, this infinite dissatisfaction that we need something other than God to make us happy, to make us feel like we're worth something. And yet God made our hearts. In fact, he made our hearts God-sized. These hearts have been made for God himself. These hearts have been made to be satisfied in him, to love him, to know him, to delight in him, to savor him, to be satisfied in him. And this is why Israel's impatient. This is why they grumble and complain. 
This is why they slander Moses, why they curse God. They want more of something other than God that they think will satisfy them. And I think when anything in life is an absolute requirement for our happiness, for our satisfaction, and our self-worth, it is first felt in our emotions, and then it usually then bubbles up out of our mouths. Why do you get angry? Why are you upset? Why are you bitter? Why are you jealous? Why are you afraid? Why do you think your life is miserable? I think it would be a good thing for all of us to stop looking at something outside of ourselves, stop even looking at our circumstances, and that we would just look deep inside and see the deeper poison that causes the poison that comes out of our mouths. I'll tell you the people that you really see this in, and I'm not trying to like put the spotlight on them. But a lot of people have a lot of success in getting what they actually want. And then they get it, and they want more, and they get more. And they still want more, and they get more. And they want to be better, and they become better. They want to make it to the top, they make it to the top. Boris Becker recently talking about rising to the top in the tennis world. He's the youngest ever win Wimbledon. He said, no one knew at that time how much I wanted to kill myself. It wasn't scratching the itch like everyone told me it would. Joe Stoll last week talked about Bernard Longer after his Masters win. Um, that was his second Masters win. When he, they asked him, how does this feel? And he just took it all off winning the Masters. And it was Easter Sunday, and he said, what I feel in my heart is the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But, interesting, as he was saying that last week, I was thinking about a conversation that I have with a good friend who's good friends with Bernard Longer, who recently told me that Bernard Longer, after his first master's win, went home to his hotel that night. It was like a two-by-four just hit him across the head. The profound emptiness and despair in my life, he said, was overwhelming. And what happened between his first master's and his second master's? He met Christ. See, the one who made our hearts is the only one who can cure our hearts. And the cure will only happen when we recognize that we're sick. And the sickness we're talking about is not a stomach ache. We're talking about a deadly poison. Israel has been bitten and people are dying and they can't help but see the magnitude of their sickness. And so they repent I love it. They come to Moses in verse 7. They say, we've sinned. We've sinned. Can you say that? 
Then they say, we've cursed the Lord. We've slandered Moses. Now they're naming the actual poison. Can you name your sin? It is so easy to see the poison that's in other people, but can you look in your own heart and see the poison that's inside of you? So they say to Moses, Moses, intercede for us. Help us, Moses. This is the first and only time in Numbers when God's people ever ask Moses to intercede for them. And God does something shocking. Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a snake. Wait a second, God. You told us we are never to make any graven image. You want me to make a snake? Make a snake, Moses. Put it up on a pole. In fact, the word for pole here in Hebrew, it's the word nice. Nice throughout the, the Old Testament is translated as either a standard or banner, but standard or banner don't mean that much to us. It's, it's basically the ancient world's version of a flag. Think about football games. Think about when the team comes running out on the field. A lot of times, the first guy out has a niece in his hand. He's carrying a flag. I know one football team that has to touch the banner. They have to touch their niece, all of them, before they play the game. And here, God says, make one of these things. Also, in the ancient world, uh, the, the way that you would gather an army for war is the general would go high up on a hill and, and with that niece, that, that standard, that ba banner, he would raise it and, and the army would gather around. And, and we know that even throughout history, the armors, armies always go into battle with their flag bearer bearing their niece, their flag. And look at Numbers 2, verse 2. It took a lot for me the first time we were in this text to go over this, but now I can go back to it. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. <laughs> so as God is organizing each of these tribes around the tent, each tribe had its own niece, its own flag with its own unique signia. So you have the Judah lions, you have the Ephraim oxes, you have the Benjamin wolves. God is not against tribe Tribes and tribal identity like our cultural elites are today. But ultimately, there needs to be a niece, a flag, a banner that rallies all the tribes around God. What's God's flag? In fact, Israel's first battle in the desert is with the Amalekites. And the Amalekites in the Bible actually represent the snake in the Bible. The Amalekites attack and Israel doesn't have a niece that rallies it around God. So, so Moses has to make a makeshift niece. He, he finds a high hill overlooking the battle. He, he runs up 
uh, onto that hill where he knows everyone can see him, and he becomes the makeshift niece. He stands on the hill as the niece, as the flag and the banner, with his hands raised to God. And if you think I'm exaggerating this, after the victory, he builds an altar to God and names it, the Lord is my niece. He's our banner. Then when you get to the prophets and you come to Isaiah, Isaiah 11, which I think is one of the most beautiful depictions about who Messiah will be, and and this stunning reality of the kingdom he's going to unleash. In fact, it's, it's in Isaiah 11, this kingdom is described, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lay down with the goat, the calf and the lion, the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like an ox, and the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest, they will neither harm nor destroy. On my holy mountain, declares the Lord. And the world that is described here is a world that's completely healed from the snake's venom. And then the next verse says, and the Messiah, like Moses, will stand as a niece, as a flag, as a banner, not just for Israel, Because the next verse says this banner will be lifted and raised up for the four corners of the earth to see. And then when you fast forward to Jesus and you come to John 3, one night he's talking with Nicodemus and they're talking about this healing. A healing that will be so profound that Jesus can only describe it in terms of being born again. I love how Augustine, uh, the great church father, talked about his own conversion in his uh, book, The Confessions. He talks about uh, what what we know from his life, this, this, this life that he lived in sexual indulgence before he came to Christ. But then years after coming to Christ, he ran into one of his old hookups and she threw herself at him. And when he didn't respond the way he did in the past, she said, Augustine, do you recognize me? It's me. And all Augustine can say back to her is, I know, but it's no longer me. And that's the profound change and the profound healing that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about that we can be born again. We're we're, we're made completely new. And even Nicodemus says, Jesus, how can this be? And Jesus responds back to him. He says, you're Israel's rabbi. You know the text. Let me make two simple, uh, let me make one connection between two simple concepts in the text, Nicodemus. The first concept Son of man. And the Son of Man is this is this mysterious messianic human-like figure of Daniel 7, who, who after leaving the heavenlies and coming to earth and slaying the great dragon who's uh, wreaking hell upon earth, he then ascends back through the clouds, stands before God Himself. In fact, uh, the rabbis of Jesus even embellished this because they knew this son of man was, was going to be the Messiah. And so they envisioned him standing before God's throne in all this 
wore blood-staked, soaked war garb, sword in one hand, the head of the dragon the other. And God in that moment says, you will be Lord of lords, king of kings, and have dominion over everything. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, son of man, connect that with that famous story that we learned as kids, Numbers 21, when our ancestors in the desert were bitten by snakes and how God instructed Moses to make a bronze snake, lift it up on a pole on God's knees, and then those who were bitten by the snakes could just come and look at the pole and be healed. Because herein lies the mystery, Nicodemus, of how God will heal us, how God will heal the world of this deadly venom. God will raise up his banner, his niece, for the four corners of the earth to see, and on that banner will be the Son of Man lifted up like a snake pinned to a pole. Like a snake. Why like a snake lifted up on a pole? Well, snake wrapped around a pole to this day is the universal sign of healing. In Hebrew, every Hebrew letter is a number because they don't have numerals. Every Hebrew word Um, has a numeric value. The numeric value of snake is 358. The numeric value of Messiah is 358. Like a snake on a pole. That means when we look at the cross, we're, we're, we're not just beholding Christ as great as that is, but we're We're looking at our own sin, our poison, our venom. And Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, the Messiah, he came to bear that sin. He absorbed in himself all the poison that poisons us. The Son of Man lifted up in that way is God's injection into a sick world to heal it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us shalom was upon him by his wounds. We are healed. Could there be any greater Christmas text than this? Because we all know the next verse. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes, whoever trusts, whoever comes and looks at God's niece, the Son of Man lifted up on a pole, will be healed. Have you been healed? Have you come to God's niece and looked? 
You know, looking is, is actually harder than it, than it seems. I mean, you, you think, really, it's this easy? But actually, no, it's, it's hard to look at something other than ourselves. It's hard to stop looking at all the other things in the world that we think will make us right and remake our, our existence. All we have to do is come to God's niece and look, just look. Think about when you were born. Tell me what you had to do. It wasn't your labor. It was the labor and suffering of someone else. It was the labor of your mother. I watched all three of mine being born, and I witnessed the labor that Libby went through to bring those three into the world. Jesus, when thinking about the cross, says these words in John 16, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that her child is born into the world. Jesus became like our mother who did all the labor to offer us new birth. All we need to do is look. Isaiah 45, 22, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. As we look at that baby born in Bethlehem, may we remember why he came to the world, to be God's niece the flag that God would plant on a hill for the four corners of the earth to see. To say you want to be healed of the venom, come and look. Let's pray. And you, God, you had this in mind before the foundations of the world. And I'm just left asking the question, why would you do this? Why? Why would you be lifted up like a snake on a pole? For God so loved the world. You just love us in spite of us. And God, ultimately, that is what changes us. We bless you. We look to you. We trust you. Mm -hmm.